The following audio is from River City Baptist Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at rivercityrichmond.org. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain, I will show you. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place that God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up, and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies, and through your offspring all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. Then Abraham returned to his servants, and they set off together for Beersheba, and Abraham stayed in Beersheba. When I was about 10 years old, uh, my dad, my family, and I, were, we were driving back home from the, from the city, and uh, I said to my dad, can we get some ice cream on the way home? And so my dad, uh, something you should know about him, sometimes he can be a little bit sarcastic. So he said, yes, we can get some ice cream on the way home. And on our way home, we're driving, and we, I see the ice cream place, and I see him. He starts to pull in, he pulls in, and then quickly diverts, goes back on the road. We don't get any ice cream that day. And I, I felt a little bit like there was, a, there was a promise made to me. It felt a little bit like that promise had been broken. Now, we're all accustomed to broken promises. We live in a fallen world, so it's, it's normal. But in our text today, we're confronted with a promise from 4,000 years ago you might be tempted to believe that this promise has nothing to do with you. But in fact, it does. 
Because if this promise fails, you die. If God keeps this promise, you can live. So we're going to be in the book of Genesis today, chapter 22. And what I think the main idea of this text is, and therefore the main idea of this sermon, is this. God has always kept his promises, so you can trust him today. God has always kept his promises, so you can trust him today. And we'll look at this kind of in three scenes. So these aren't like your normal points. I'm tracing the, the themes in this narrative. And you can almost think of it as scene one, the prequel, scene two, the, the movie, scene three, the sequel. But these, these three scenes, I've titled them, number one, the promise. Number one, the promise. Number two, the problem. And number three, the provision. So go ahead, open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 22. Uh, if, if you don't have a Bible today, you can read it on the service guide, page 10. Uh, or if, you, if you're just new to the Bible, it's actually the first book of the Bible. So you can open it up and uh, find the big number 22. So before we get into chapter 22, I want to briefly kind of sketch out a little bit of the context of the book of Genesis and the life of Abraham. So one, one tip for you, if you've ever come to the Old Testament and you're like, what in the world? How do I, how do I read this? How do I understand this? One, one tip for you, you have to read it in view of the covenants. You have to read it in view of the promises that God has given to his people. So the, the first promise that we see, Genesis 3.15 Genesis 1 and 2, God created the world. Genesis 3, Adam and Eve sinned. They rebelled against God. Genesis 3, 15, God gives a promise of hope. And he says this, I will put enmity between you, speaking to Satan, I will put enmity between Satan and the woman, Eve, and between your offspring, Satan's offspring, and hers, he will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. Amid these curses, amidst their rebellion against God, God is promising that a future offspring is coming, a future Savior, one who would defeat Satan. Now fast forward a couple thousand years to Genesis chapter 12. At this point in history, the world is just crumbling. Sin has, has made its way, has wreaked havoc on the world. They've turned against the one true God and they're worshiping false gods. And then we see this guy, he, he kind of randomly comes on the scene. We're introduced to him at the end of Genesis 11 and God says to him in Genesis 12, in verse one, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. Pay attention to this last one. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. 
As you can see, God's making a few different promises to Abraham, but that last promise in particular, that's the one that we need to focus our attention on in light of our text today. All peoples on earth will be blessed through Abraham. Well, what's, what's going on here? What does God mean by this? Essentially, what he's doing, it's the same promise that we saw back in Genesis 3.15. And just as a heads up, the whole rest of the Bible is pretty much a footnote to that promise in Genesis 3.15. So, Genesis 3.15, the promise of a Savior coming through the woman. Genesis 12, the promise of a Savior coming through Abraham. In this Savior will be a blessing to all the nations on earth. Now there's just one small problem. Actually, one major problem. Because Abraham, at this time, is 75 years old. His wife Sarah is 65. And they don't have any kids. And Sarah can't have kids because she's barren. She's never been able to have kids. So God says, Abraham, I'm going to give you a son, but they can't have kids. Ten years later, the Lord still hasn't given them a kid, still hasn't given them a child, and so they decide to take matters into their own hands. They have a slave named Hagar. They kind of rationalize, they logically assume, well, maybe God gave us this promise, but we can fulfill it through Hagar. So Abraham and Hagar have a child. Fast forward 14 years, that's not what God meant. God tells them again when Abraham is 99 years old, I am going to give you a child through Sarah. And the offspring is going to come through this child. So the next year, the child comes. Think about that. 25 years of waiting. 25 years of anticipation. And finally, the child comes. This is the promise. The promise of a savior from Isaac. Next, we see the problem. So scene two, the problem. We'll start by reading the first, view, the first few verses of the chapter, starting in verse 1. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah, sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. I know most of you have, have probably read this story before. You know the ending, but I think we just need to take a second and realize the gravity of this command. As we just read in the context, Abraham and Sarah have been waiting for this child for 25 years, and finally Isaac comes. But at this time, that, that God is telling him to sacrifice your son, Isaac is probably a teenager, maybe even a young man. So not only have they waited the 25 years for God to fulfill that promise in giving them Isaac, but they've held Isaac in their arms as a baby. 
they've watched Isaac grow up and take his first steps. They've heard Isaac speak his first words. Maybe, maybe even there's some kind of ancient baseball, and Abraham has taught Isaac how to throw a stone and swing a stick. Perhaps they, they teach him about the Lord and, and how kind the Lord has been and how much joy the Lord has brought them. They teach him about the history of the world and how everything is broken, and they teach him about the promise that through his descendants would come the Savior. The promised child has come. He's grown into a young man. And then the Lord says, sacrifice him. Now, this isn't just a request for Abraham to sacrifice his son. That's shocking enough for us. But it's a request for Abraham to give up his future descendants. And it's a request for Abraham to give up the promised Savior. But how could God make such a request? Doesn't this just seem evil? I thought God was good. I thought he was merciful and kind, but, but this just seems downright evil. And this is the thought of many skeptics who read the Bible. And if we're honest, if we've really taken the time to think about this text and think about this request, maybe that's a thought that you've had. So we need to see what the rest of the Bible has to say about this. And the short answer for you, is God cruel? No, God is not cruel. So we see in Leviticus 18, verse 21, and Leviticus 20, verse 2, there's a clear command from God that Israel is not to sacrifice their children to other gods. Then we see in Jeremiah 19:5 that the Israelites, they were, being disobedient, sacrificing their children to other gods, and God says, why are you doing this? I didn't command you to do this. In fact, it didn't even enter into my mind. This child sacrifice is so opposed to God's character that he says it didn't even enter into his mind. It wasn't even a thought. Another reason that God isn't cruel, it's actually found in the first verse. One particular word. So look, look down at verse one again. This one word serves kind of as the key for interpreting this text. So verse one, sometime later, God tested Abraham. God tested Abraham. When we read this passage, we have to read it in light of this word. God is testing Abraham. And what is the, what is the test? It's as if God is asking a one-question test, do you trust me? Do you trust me? Now, God knows everything. He knows how Abraham's going to respond. And so, when we, when we ask the question, is God cruel? We're really asking the wrong question from the text because the, the, the text isn't trying to give us the answer to that question. It's not trying to show us God's character. The text in this test of Abraham is trying to show us Abraham's character. So is God cruel? No. God is good. So good that this stands 
in complete opposition to his character. But we have to remember, this is a test. God is testing Abraham. God is seeing, Abraham, do you trust me? So God gives the command, take your son Isaac, sacrifice him as a burnt offering. And then we read in verse 3, early the next morning, Abraham got up and ran away. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son, Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. Do you feel how slow this is? I mean, Moses, he's, he's the author of this book. He's kind of being very brief in his description, but these actions are just slow, painstakingly slow. I mean, he wakes up in the morning, he grabs two servants, and then he grabs his son Isaac. I mean, just, just imagine perhaps what, what he was thinking in this moment. He wakes up, first thing on his mind, in three days, I have to sacrifice my son. He grabs his two servants, and then maybe for the first time, he sees Isaac. And it's just it pierces him to the heart because he knows this is the son. In three days, I am going to kill him. Maybe, maybe Isaac greets him with a smile. But Abraham knows in three days, that smile will be gone. He then moves on to cut the wood. Again, Moses says it so briefly, but, but he has to take time to go and gather the wood. He goes out, he finds the different pieces of wood, then he has to take time to chop the wood. And maybe, you know, you've, you've all seen different kids, when they get to bedtime, they're always trying to delay. They're trying to delay. They ask, they ask questions, but, but maybe Abraham gets to this. He's cutting the wood and he's just thinking, okay, just a few more pieces. I just need to cut a few more pieces. How much do I need? Maybe I just need a little bit more. Maybe I need a little bit more. But maybe, maybe we're going to have a campfire. So maybe I need to bring enough for the campfire. Maybe we're going to you know, have some s'mores kind of as a, a last hoorah before, before the big event. And so he keeps cutting wood, swinging the axe, knowing that in just a few swings, the blade would fall on his son. And next, they have the journey, a three-day journey. Did Abraham speak to Isaac? I mean, did he even have words to say? Did he try and get the last bits of conversation in with his son? At night, when he, when he laid his head to rest in those, the day is coming. I'm going to sacrifice my son soon. I'm going to slay my son soon. And then he wakes up and he thinks, I'm one day closer I'm one day closer, and with each step walking toward the mountain, it's just agonizing. Each step inches closer to that dreadful moment. Yet they keep going, step by step. In verse 4, on the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in a distance. He said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Did you catch that? 
We'll come back to it in a minute. Verse 6, Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac. And he himself carried the fire and the knife as the two of them went on together. Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and the wood are here. But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? What a gut-wrenching question. For the last three days, Abraham has had one thing on his mind, to sacrifice his son Isaac. And he knows they're walking up the mountain right now for him to offer up his son. And Abraham asked this question. I'm sure it was piercing to the heart. I mean, he can't, he can't just look at Isaac and say, well, son, actually, you're the sacrifice. No. I'm guessing he's, he couldn't even look Isaac in the eyes. He's probably turned his face away, holding back tears, maybe even just choking out a response. Verse 8, God himself. God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. Again, in verse 9, you you can feel the tension building. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar, and he arranged the wood on it. When he gets to the place, the point, the very point that he's going to offer up his son, he has to stop. He has to grab the wood, and he starts building putting the wood each in its precise place, perhaps hammering in nails to build this altar with each swing of the hammer, remembering that in just a few swings it would be his son. He lays the wood perfectly on the altar. And maybe he's thinking again, if I delay, Maybe if I delay, maybe there's this lingering hope that God at some point right now is going to intervene, but he doesn't. In the end of verse 9, he bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Verse 10, then he reached out his hand, took the knife to slay his son. He's at the very moment, knife in hand, coming down, I mean, what, just, just imagine, what, what is he thinking at this point? After Abraham, he bound his son Isaac, he laid him on the altar, and he stands there, maybe he stands there for just a moment. Maybe he looks, looks down at his son. Maybe he sees the, the tears streaming down his face as Isaac recognizes for the very first time, I am the sacrifice. Maybe Abraham can't look at him. Maybe he's pacing around, just just thinking, wondering, pondering, can I actually do this? And the reality is, we don't know. We don't know. The author Moses makes no mention of how Abraham or Isaac felt in this entire scenario. I mean, we can guess, but we don't know. The only thing, the only thing that Moses seems to communicate right now is that Abraham is going to kill his son. Abraham is going to answer yes to God's question, do you trust me? 
So we're left seeing Abraham's faith and his obedience displayed, but with one prevailing question. How will God fulfill his promise? God promised a savior through the line of Isaac. How will God fulfill his promise? This is the problem. Now, in scene three, the provision. At just the right time, just as Abraham begins his descent, the angel of the Lord calls out to him, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Perhaps he's stumbling backwards. He sees the angel. He recognizes this is, he's stopping it. Don't lay a hand on the boy, he said. Don't do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld your son, your only son. Do you remember back in verse 1 where we see that God tested Abraham? Well, here in, in verse 12, we see explicitly what the Lord is looking for. He says, now I know that you fear God. And we'll see it written in another verse, in, in verse 18. God was looking to see if Abraham would obey him. But how does Abraham obey God? I mean, how does he actually go through with this? How does Abraham obey God to the point of sacrificing his own son? Does he, does he not see this clear contradiction? God promised that through Isaac the Savior would come, and then he says, you need to kill Isaac before Isaac has any children. Look back at, at verse 5. I highlighted this earlier. Verse 5, he said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship, and then we will come back to you. So Abraham tells his servants that, that they're going to go worship, and he's intending to bring Isaac back. Why? Why does he say this? Well, Hebrews 11, 17 through 19, we read it earlier. Verse 17, by faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. And so, in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from the dead. Do you notice what, what Abraham is doing? Abraham it was pre presented with what seems to be a clear contradiction. On the one hand, the promised Savior is going to come through Isaac. On the other hand, you need to kill Isaac. But instead of trying to, to view and, and kind of judge God based on the confusing circumstances, he actually trusts in God's promise. He, pressed, he trusted in the certainty of God, God's promise so much so that he reasoned, okay, I know the least possible scenario is that God doesn't keep his promise. So, God's telling me sacrifice my son. I don't know how in the world, I don't know what in the world is going to happen, but I know that God is going to keep his promise. And so, I guess God can raise the dead. Abraham trusted God and obeyed. 
Despite uncertainty, despite confusion, he trusted and obeyed. He could have been tempted to take matters into his own hands, just like he did with, with Hagar and Ishmael. He could have been tempted to, to say, well, God, that doesn't really make sense. That doesn't really make sense. How, how is the offspring going to come through Isaac if I have to kill Isaac? That, that's illogical, God. Now, I do have this other son that, that the promise isn't going to come through, so maybe you actually meant that I need to sacrifice Ishmael. He doesn't do that. He doesn't try to take matters into his own hands. He trusted and obeyed. Brothers and sisters, in what ways do you try to take matters into your own hands? In what ways do you kind of ask the question of the serpent in the garden, did God really say? Singles, did God really say that we're to marry believers? Have you been tempted just by a growing discontentment and singleness toward maybe the, the non-Christian in your workplace? Or do you view the season of life as a good gift that the Lord has ordained just for you? Parents, did God really teach us that he's sovereign over all things, even over our children? Are you tempted to believe that if you do everything right, then your kids will turn out exactly how you want them to? Or do you act as if your kids belong ultimately to God and he has entrusted them to you to lead well as faithful stewards so that, in fact, you can entrust them to God? Kids, did God really say to honor your parents? Are you tempted to disobey your parents when they ask you to do something that maybe you just don't want to do? Or do you joyfully obey knowing that the Lord himself has given your parents as a good gift to you? Church members, did God really say, confess your sins to one another? Are you tempted to hide your struggles and sins? Or do you openly confess that sin that you might experience the grace of God in the care of his saints? Christians who maybe aren't a member of a church, did God really teach in his word that we ought to be members of local churches? Are you tempted to believe that God never prescribed in his word membership for Christians? Or do you joyfully want to submit to a local church who teaches and preaches the same gospel that's preached here? Brothers and sisters, every time we sin, every time we sin, we're taking matters into our own hands and we're distrusting the word of God. Sin is, even though sometimes it seems like the most logical possibility, sin is always illogical and dangerous. But there's a certain, there is a certain joyful simplicity about the commands of God. God spoke to us in his word. He told us exactly what he wants us to do in his word. 
We don't have to wonder. We don't have to do all these mental gymnastics to figure out what God's trying to teach us. No, God has told us what he wants us to do in his word. He's told us how we can obey him. You don't have to have everything figured out. Abraham didn't have everything figured out. He had no idea what the outcome was going to be. You don't have to have everything figured out. You simply have to trust God at his word. And I'm not, I'm not prescribing some kind of blind faith. No. We take God at his word because he's proven himself time and time again to be good, to be trustworthy. And the commands that he has given us are ultimately for our good and for our joy. So praise the Lord. Praise the Lord that he's told us how we can obey him so clearly in his word. Well, we just saw the angel stopped Abraham in the act. And immediately, we see in verse 13, Abraham looked up, and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by its, thorns, by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said, on the mountains of the Lord it will be provided. Here in these verses, I'm going to teach you a, a big word, theological word. Here in these verses, we see a clear picture of the doctrine of substitutionary atonement. God's wrath, God's judgment for sin could have rightly been poured out on Isaac. Isaac, just as his father, Abraham, and their father, Adam, was born into sin. He could have placed his wrath on them, but instead, what he did instead was he provided a ram that the sin, that the wrath would be poured out on that ram instead of Isaac. And so he calls the place the Lord will provide. And little did he know that hundreds of years later, the Lord would make his dwelling place the temple in that very place. In verse 2, we see the Lord command Abraham to go up to the region of Moriah. And in 2 Chronicles 3.1, we see the Lord command Solomon build the temple in, on the mount of Moriah. So, little did Abraham know that for hundreds of years after this, God would make his dwelling place, the temple, the place where sacrifices would happen, the place where God would pour out his wrath and his judgment onto animals right there in that place the Lord provided. But these sacrifices and these offerings were insufficient First off, they had to continually offer sacrifice for sin over and over and over again. They had to keep killing animals over and over again. Secondly, this, this, uh, at this point in time in kind of the history of redemption, God's people were exclusive to the blood relatives of Abraham. Over time, Isaac had 
a child. We see Isaac was spared. Isaac then had a child named Jacob. Jacob had children, and then those children eventually became descendants of Abraham, the nation of Israel. And the law was given to Israel. The sacrifices were given to Israel. Atonement was given to Israel. Forgiveness was given to Israel. But God's promise wasn't a savior for Israel. If you look down at, at verse 18, he's, God is reiterating the promises to Abraham. We see our promise in particular in verse 18, and through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed. He doesn't say, and through your offspring, all Israel will be blessed. And through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed. So again, God's promise to Abraham, it's not a savior for his relatives only. The promise was a savior for the whole world. And, and just as a side note, if, if anyone has ever said to you or if anyone in the future says to you that God in the Old Testament didn't care about the nations, point them to this promise. God, from the very beginning of time, before the foundations of the world, had the nations on his mind, had the nations on his heart, and therefore, brothers and sisters, had you on his mind and on his heart. Anyway, God's promise that Abraham's offspring would be a blessing to the nations was preserved through God's bearing Isaac, yet it wasn't fulfilled. It wasn't yet fulfilled, nor would it be fulfilled in Abraham's lifetime. Much like Isaac, the promised offspring, the promised son, would come many years after the promise was given. So Isaac came 25 years after the promise was given to Abraham. The offspring, Jesus, came 2,000 years after the promise was given. As Isaac came from a barren woman, Sarah, you couldn't have kids. So Jesus came from a virgin woman, Mary. As God asked Abraham to offer up Isaac as a sacrifice, so the father sent his only son, Jesus, to be a sacrifice. Just as the wood was laid on Isaac and he carried it up the mount, so also Jesus, the wood, the cross, was laid on him and he carried it up the mount. Just as Isaac was offered up in the region of Moriah, so also Jesus was offered up outside Jerusalem in the region of Moriah. But as Isaac's life was spared and their sins were poured out on the ram, the father did not spare his only son, but gave him up as an offering for the sins of the world. Jesus did what Isaac could never do, he died the death that we all deserve and bore the wrath of all our sin on himself. And just as Isaac walked off that mountain, 
So Jesus, three days later, walked out of the grave. Brothers and sisters, the promise God gave Abraham in Genesis 12 was finally and ultimately fulfilled in Christ, in Jesus, in his life, in death, in resurrection. God has always kept his promises. So you can trust him today. If God kept his promise to Abraham that he would provide an offspring who would be a savior to the world, then you can trust him with whatever you're going through today. Believer, what has God promised you? What has God promised you? God has promised that if you come to him in faith, he will give you forgiveness. God has promised that if you come to him in faith, he will give you rest from working, from striving to cover for your own sins. God has promised that if you come to him in faith, he will give you his Holy Spirit. He will preserve you until the end. God has promised an inheritance, an eternal inheritance, that in fact, God himself, who sits on the throne, is guarding for you right now as we speak. God has promised you, believer, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. God has promised you comfort in your affliction. God has promised you that he will conform you into the image of Christ. God has made you so many promises and more. You know what else he has promised you? Have you sensed kind of a, a theme in this, in this text? 25 years, they waited for the fulfillment of the, of the promise. 2,000 years, they waited for the fulfillment of the promise of the Savior to come. Right now, we're waiting. God has promised that Jesus is going to come back. God has promised that his son, Jesus, is going to come back and he's going to bring you home. Christian, are you struggling? Are you discouraged? Is that sin still lingering? Jesus is coming back. Keep going. Keep obeying. Keep trusting. He's coming back. He's going to bring you home. And one day he's promised that you too will be sinless. No more sin. No more tears, no more struggles, no more pain. Christian, he's coming back. So live today in obedience to him. Christian, despite your uncertainty, despite confusion, despite not knowing what in the world is going to come next, you can rest in the certainty that Jesus is coming back and he won't fail. Maybe you're here today and you're not a Christian. You've never trusted in Jesus for your salvation. I want you to know that God has made a promise to you too. And remember, God always keeps his promises. God will judge the living and the dead. 
And if you have not come to him by faith, if you have not trusted and believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will receive eternal wrath. But hear this promise of hope. Here's the good news. Our Lord Jesus promised us, John 6, 37, all, all who come to me, I will never drive away. Friend, God has kept his promises so you can come to him. Don't worry, don't fear. He's not going to drive you away. Don't worry about the sin that you're carrying. God will save you. He will offer you forgiveness. Come to him today. And if you trust him today, he'll never cast you out. If you trust him today, you too will join with all the blessings and the promises of the children of God. Everything I mentioned earlier, today, right now, in this moment, if you trust in him, that is true of you. Well, friends, earlier, I addressed the question, is God cruel? Is God cruel? And what I hope you see by now is that God is not cruel. Rather, he is infinitely merciful and good. Not only did he provide a ram so that Isaac could be spared, but he provided his own son so that we could be spared. So friends, Christians, God has always kept his promises so you can trust him today. Let's pray. Our Father, we praise you that you are a promise-keeping God. We praise you that despite our failings, despite our sin, you have provided a way that we too can be saved. We can be forgiven of our sin. And we praise you that you never fail in keeping that promise. Our Father, help us to trust you. Help us to walk in obedience today and forevermore. We pray this in Jesus' name, to his honor and glory. Amen.